G'day mate, 40 here. I think we're going out over Rumble. I believe we're going out over YouTube. Oh, Ghana. Restream is not streaming to Facebook. I believe we're going out over Odyssey. And we're going out live over Twitter. So let me pull everything together and uh, just play a little Tucker Carlson while I get my stuff in order. A presidential library, a shrine to a former president, is a relatively new idea. For the first 150 years of this country's existence, presidents didn't have lavish monuments built to commemorate their rule. The whole notion would have repulsed the men who waged a war with a monarchy to build this country. But starting with the FDR, of course, presidential libraries became customary, and they've gradually transformed from that, from libraries, into multi-million dollar temples to hubris. The most recent ex-president to get his very own temple, and the biggest of all, of course, million is Barack Obama. The total cost of his library clocks in at about half a billion dollars. Construction began last year when Obama demanded that his donors pay for it. But today, construction of the temple was halted because of an emergency. No, not a fire, not a lightning strike. According to the construction company working on the library, quote, this morning, we were informed that an act of hate was discovered at the project site. And you knew the act of hate was serious because the media went all in. They devoted a lot of time to talking about this. We're on the brink of nuclear war and a recession, but... The act of hate on the Obama construction site led the news. Watch. Construction at the Obama Presidential Center in Chicago is suspended after a noose was discovered at the site on Thursday. An act of hate. A noose is found at the site of the Obama Presidential Center. A noose was found at the site. Illinois Governor J.B. Pritzker condemning the hateful act. An ugly racist symbol was found at the future site of the Obama Presidential Center. A noose was discovered at the construction site this morning. Operations were halted and the police were called. A $100,000 reward has been offered for information leading to those responsible for what officials described as this shameless act of cowardice and hate. A lot of huffing and puffing. Have you heard a story like this before? Well, it wasn't that long ago, in the middle of a national crime wave, which it has done very little to solve, the FBI rushed a team of agents to a NASCAR garage after a character called Bubba Wallace suggested that a noose had been left in that garage. Turns out the noose was a garage door pull. Oh, here's the interesting thing. Everyone makes mistakes, but mistakes like this never get corrected. Nobody ever apologized for that. Not the media, not the FBI, and certainly not Bubba Wallace. In fact, Bubba Wallace said that only stupid people would doubt his story, even after it was proven to be false. What would you say to those people who are doubting that this even happened or that it's true? Yeah, just like uh, Steve Phelps said, it offends me that people would go to those measures. But again, <clears throat> I'm not shocked. It's simple-minded people like that, the ones that are afraid of change. Um, they, they use everything in their power to defend what they stand up for. And instead of trying to listen and understand. What? You alleged a crime? Hard to see how that's a crime, but whatever. Worthy of the attention of the FBI. This is all insane. But it, you were wrong. But instead of apologizing, you're lecturing people like they're your moral inferiors for asking questions. And it was obvious from the beginning that Bubba Wallace's story made no sense. We're not saying he was making it up, but he was wrong. And there is a high likelihood that this noose at Barack Obama's temple might be a hoax, too. 
I mean, this is hysterical. They're holding construction on Barack Obama's temple over a putative noose. How come the mainstream media never talks about hate hoaxes? Right? We hear all the time about hate crimes. How come we, we never hear about the existence of hate hoaxes? And almost all of these nooses and the like turn out to be hoaxes. And yet, because this concept of a hate hoax is never put into people's mind by the mainstream media, they just take it oh so seriously. And speaking of taking things oh so seriously, let's check in with the New York Times editorial page. So what do we got here? Why, why Atlanta is the blackest show ever. And then get this, by Toure, right? Toure is a TV host and the creative director at the Grio. Now, how many op-eds get published by authors with just one name? I mean, I'm not uh, not familiar with, with a lot of them. So let's let's have a look at his. Is he really just got one name? No, he's born Toure Neblet. All right. So why does the New York Times let this guy get away with the the Toure persona? Right. Is just Toure on his driver's license? Is uh, Toure on his uh, passport? Who else does the New York Times indulge in this way? Does it? I'm forgetting. Does it publish op-eds by just Stephen? As everyone knows, Stephen is Steven Spielberg. Does the New York Times publish op-eds by Tom? Everyone knows it's uh, Tom Cruise. Does the New York Times publish op-eds just by Samuel? Because everyone knows it's Samuel Jackson. Does the New York Times publish op-eds by Russell? Because everyone knows it's Russell Crowe. Or, or does the New York Times just bend and accommodate the, these delusions of grandeur by Toure Neblat, right? Is this just something they do primarily for offended people of color, that they just give them, you know, expanded rights so that black gets capitalized, but white is not capitalized? So you can get away with saying, oh, I've only got one name, right? I'm, I'm a legend just like Tom and Stephen just call me Toure. I don't remember any other articles published in the New York Times by an author who's just given one name. I mean, theoretically, Prince, the, the rock musician. But this is not common practice. And tell me if I'm a bad man, but it certainly seems to me that some groups have a much greater need for distinctiveness that they, they need to like use unusual spellings for their names, that they need to stand out as much as possible. They need to be the big man, right? So this you know, overwhelming egoistic need to be the big man, to have distinctive spellings of your name, maybe I'm wrong. It seems much more distinctive among certain groups than other groups. Like I don't recall Mexican-Americans behaving this way. I don't recall Asian-Americans behaving this way. Is this like a... A Japanese trait? No. In, in Japan, they they have the idea that the, the nail that sticks up will be hammered down. In Australia, we have tall poppy syndrome. So you try to pull this stuff in in Australia, where you want to use distinctive spellings of your name and just go by a, a one-word name. I, I don't think Aussies would be down with it, but luckily, Media Hits is here, and he says, I can just call him Al. Okay, Al, just call me 40. <laughs> so I tell you what. When I publish an op-ed in the New York Times, I'm not going to say by 40, right? 40 is a YouTuber, right? Is that 
40 is a, so if, if this was my op-ed, would, would the New York Times allow me to say by 40? 40 is a YouTube host and an Alexander Technique teacher in Beverly Hills. Somehow, I don't think the New York Times is going to allow me to get away with that. I mean, why does does the New York Times just like bend over backwards and just genuflect to people like this? It's ridiculous. Okay, so do you watch Atlanta? I, I don't watch the TV show Atlanta, and tell me if I'm a bad man, but I'm much more interested in seeing movies and TV shows about people who are like me. Now, that doesn't just mean racially, right? I'm a convert to Orthodox Judaism, so... I'm more likely to see movies about Jews than I am to see movies about non-Jews. There is a, an Australian Jewish film festival going on right now, just a couple of miles away at a theater in Randwick. They're showing you know, Jewish movies, and I'm probably going to go to that, right? Because movies with the Jewish theme are of particular interest to me as a convert to Judaism. So it, it does not surprise me that black Americans, white Americans overwhelmingly watch very different TV shows. People primarily want to see TV shows that they can relate to. This isn't just race and it's not just religion. It's not just uh, geographic area. It's not just profession, but it often includes, you know, all these qualities and more. <clears throat> so if you're going through a particular struggle or a challenge or you have a particularly passionate hobby, then yeah, you'll be much more likely to watch TV shows or movies about people who share these passions, right? I used to run marathons. So I have a particular interest, a way above normal interest in the long distance runner. But race and religion also play a, a big, big role here. So it doesn't surprise me that uh, Atlanta is a TV show about black people that is primarily watched by black people. I have never considered watching Atlanta. So here's the guest essay, why Atlanta is the blackest show ever. So that's a compliment, right? They're saying that's a great thing, right? Do you, do you think they would ever have an op-ed praising a TV show as the whitest TV show ever, and that's a good thing? So black and blackest, right? These are good things. They, they get to be capitalized. Black is capitalized in the New York Times, in the Associated Press, much of our prestigious media capitalizes black identity because black identity is real, but white identity does not get capitalized. Why not? Because white identity is apparently not a thing unless it's bad and toxic. Right? Media Hits wants to see films about French Catholics. So tell me, can you imagine a TV show about why, I mean, cheers, why Cheers is the whitest show ever, right? On the TV show Cheers, there are almost no people of color. Now, are there op-eds in our prestige, prestigious media praising Cheers for being the whitest show ever? I don't recall if there are op-eds praising Cheers for being the whitest TV show ever. Then please bring it to my attention. I, I want to be corrected. I know I think much more clearly... I think much more profoundly. I think much more wisely. All right. I think much more accurately when I think socially, when I bounce ideas and information off you and then you challenge it or you supplement it. Right. We all think wiser, more wisely when we think socially. 
Are there no white white Anglo-Saxon Protestants on Shias? I don't remember their their you know white tribal identity as as wasp or uh, Catholic doesn't really seem to come into it. But uh, for the last for the last month before I came to Australia, I would watch an episode or two of Cheers every night. It's just a great way of just kind of relaxing, calming down before going to sleep. There's an Australian TV equivalent, which is just very pleasant, fun, funny shows called Fisk, about a woman in her 50s starting work at a probate law firm. But uh, tell me, where are the op-eds by one-name authors praising Cheers as the whitest show ever and why that's a great thing? So Toure begins, I can't remember when exactly I realized that Atlanta was the blackest show in TV history, right? Where are the op-eds praising Cheers or some other show as the whitest show ever, right? So black people love to talk about what's blacker than what or who's blacker than who. Uh, Do white people get to have these conversations? I I don't remember if if, uh, there are a lot of these conversations I mean, among white people, I, I mean, who's whiter than white? No. In fact, I, I can't recall any. I'm 56 years of age. I don't recall any conversations where white people talk about who's more or less white. Now, that is something that Jews love to talk about. What's Jewish and what's Goyish? Because if you're going to survive as a tiny minority for over 2,500 years, all right, for over 2,500 years, the majority of Jews have left, lived in the diaspora where they've been a tiny minority Right, and they have managed to maintain their civilization by continually contrasting that which is Jewish with that which is Goyish or not Jewish. So this is this is also a black thing. So blacks love to talk about what's blacker than white or who's blacker than who. Blackness is more than ethnicity; it's the religion we love to praise. Well, there's no inherent reason that other races can't take on these characteristics. So Atlanta took the notion of a racial test to the nth degree in a way that was funny, but also loving. So could you imagine a New York Times op-ed praising a TV show for taking the notion of a white racial test to the nth degree in a way that's loving and funny? So the whole show is a love letter to blackness. Can you imagine the New York Times praising a TV show that is a love letter to whiteness? Oh, look, Millennial Woes mentioned you in the most recent Kino Casino. Yes, Jews have these conversations. They let me in. So send me the link. Any highlights on Millennial Woes' appearance on Kino Casino? So Millennial Woes is an immensely likable person who went off in a Nazi-like direction for a few years, which was tactically, strategically a mistake, if not you know, morally and, and socially. And now he may be finding his way back. So there's a scholarship test in the TV show Atlanta. It's administered by a tribunal of three middle-aged black men who ask questions about the nitty-gritty of blackness to prove that they understand the culture. So can you imagine a TV show where you've got a tribunal of three middle-aged white men asking applicants questions about the nitty-gritty of whiteness? I don't expect that, right? Right. So eventually this African immigrant gets shot. As he lies on a hospital gurney, the wealthy black patron arrives and tells him, getting shot by the police is the blackest thing anyone can do. Wow. 
how many layers of dysfunction does this describe? Just imagine glorying in being shot by police. I mean, number one, you know, more than 100 times for every time that this is not true, getting shot by police indicates you did a lot of things wrong, that you made a lot of terrible decisions. Right? I, I think there are probably 100 people making horrible decisions for every innocent, completely innocent person who gets shot by police. And so rewarding that, right, subsidizing this antisocial behavior, and why would any group glorify that? If your group glorifies this level of antisocial, their pro-criminal behavior, if your group glories, glorifies this dysfunctional behavior, it doesn't speak well of your group. And here you've got a TV show being praised in the New York Times for glorifying antisocial dysfunctional behavior. Atlantis, the blackest show ever, it captures the surrealism of black life in America, the sense of irrationality that warps our days. I don't think it's so irrational, right? If you have substantial segments of your community that praise people for antisocial, criminal, idiotic, stupid behavior, such as antagonizing police so that you get shot by police, Right. You've got substantial problems in your community that are not irrational. They're totally rational. They make complete sense. Gosh, maybe we should play a little bit of Millennial Woes. Maybe I'm overheating here. Right. This is Tucker Carlson on the construction of Obama's temple. A lot of these stories are. Why do they keep appearing? Um, we'll tell you why. Because accusations of hate crimes and of bias more generally are tools that the people in power use, not the powerless, the powerful, to award themselves greater and totally unearned moral authority over everybody else. Okay, good point. Said by Tucker Carlson, just nailing it, hitting it out of the park. Good on you, Tucker. That's some uh, pretty good stuff there. All right, let's check in. Run off the mill Doctor Who fans. And they're just the most fucking annoying people on earth. You know, um, they're so full of themselves. They're so smug. They think they're so fucking clever and above it, above it all. Um, and they're not. You know, a lot of them are just midwits. Uh, I, I've, when the show was revived in 2005, I spent some time on the, the forum, the Doctrine forum. Oh, for fuck's sake. I mean, it, it was just it was just a, a shit show. <laughs> I think that they're intellectual cowards. Yes, I would do it. That power would set me up above the gods. And through the Daleks, I shall have that power. I'm aware of what Doctor Who fans are like. There's a lot of bloody smugness about them. Oh my God. I was involved in a, an argument on the Doctor Who forum about welfare, and I got completely mauled by these people. And it wasn't, I mean, I, was, I have to say, I argued my, my case very well. I, I still think I did very well. I mean, they simply didn't care. Whatever I said, because I had said that I thought welfare should be more carefully rationed, we should absolutely believe that some people are self-destructive. And it's, it's just the truth. I was a villain. You know, they were, for all their... I, mean, I don't even know what fucking point he's making. Yes. <laughs> no, no, it's it's not a bit off I don't even know. It's, it's like, Bar Davros, so, you have sold your soul or something to... Yeah, is it like, so if you think that some people, like, welfare is a, a poison chalice for them, it will enable them to destroy themselves. If you think that, then you're a totalitarian dictator. I mean, for fuck's sake, it's just... And I know it's all a bit light-hearted, it's, it's a laugh and all that, but when you are the subject of the documentary and you're being portrayed as... A, you know, a dictator or whatever, for saying things that are frankly completely fucking reasonable. It's rather annoying. <laughs> and their even-handedness and their open-mindedness. They were... Okay, Millennial Wise doesn't seem to be taking a great deal of account of his own role in his own troubles, right? 
colonial wars like Luke Four has played a huge role in the creation of his own troubles. Yeah. Well, they were just... Davros, he knew it. On the attack. It's, it's, it's easy to predict when he's going to throw in Davros. Okay, if there are any good uh, timestamps. All right, the, the timestamp you gave me, I don't think that, that it that, uh, mentioned me. Right, any good timestamps, let's uh, throw them into the chat and play it. Okay, so Atlanta's the blackest show ever, and that's a good thing, right? This is getting praised here in the New York Times. So the, the author says that uh, black life is in America is irrational. No, I think it's perfectly rational. When you're writing op-eds praising antisocial, criminal, stupid, idiotic behavior, such as antagonizing police so that they shoot you, then those areas of black life that are having trouble, right, are having trouble for completely rational and understandable reasons. Black people know that just by walking down the street, you can fall through any number of trapdoors that lead to a bizarre world where up is down and your life is in danger. Well, is that primarily the fault of black people or the fault of non-black people? Like, who is primarily murdering black people? Is it non-black people or black people? Wait, most murder. The overwhelming number of murders are intra-racial. They are murders within a racial group. Most white people are murdered by white people. Most Mexican-Americans are murdered by Latinos. Most black Americans are murdered by black people. All right? So if you're walking down the street and you get into a situation where your life is in danger, statistically, that will overwhelmingly be because of other black people. It won't be because of non-black America, right? This Christian Cooper bird watcher in Central Park, and then the next thing you know, a white woman is calling 911 and saying you're threatening her. You, he did threaten her dog. He says, you're not going to like what I'm about to do. He threatened her, and he threatened her dog, right? If he had made different choices, she would not have called 911 on him. Christian Cooper played a significant role in his own trouble. The the immediate narrative here is to try to discourage people from calling 911 on criminal or threatening behavior if it's done by black people. You can be jogging in Georgia like Ahmed Arbery when three men start chasing you in trucks and suddenly you're running for your life. Ahmed Arbery was not just out for a jog. The guy is a criminal. He participated in his own destruction by making a lot of stupid antisocial choices. When you get to your job, some people assume you got it because of affirmative action or diversity initiatives. Well, yeah, maybe, maybe that has something to do with the fact that that's frequently true. So if you don't want that, then, then maybe, maybe it'd be, it'd be a good idea to oppose affirmative action and diversity initiatives, right? Because 80% of the time, it's going to be true. Almost 90% of black applicants and almost 90% of Latino applicants who are accepted into medical school have lower test scores than white and Asian students who are rejected from medical schools. Thank you so much, Media Hits, $4 Super Chat. Let's have a look here. All right, so real quickly, I want to talk about mojo and testosterone. Because one thing you guys have to understand about life 
in general is that everything is momentum, social momentum, energy, flow. As Okay, this is profound. This is good stuff. Newton's first law of motion says, an object in motion stays in motion while an object at rest stays at rest unless forced to move by an outside object, right? Which basically means that if you are laying on your couch like a piece of shit and you've been doing that for the last six months, year, two years, three years, just laying on your couch, eating nachos, playing video games, it is very unlikely that you are going to just wake up one day and dramatically change your lifestyle, like suddenly change your lifestyle, unless something forces you to do so. Okay, you might get evicted from your place where now you're forced to get off the couch and move. You might, there might be a hurricane or a storm that comes through and just... Okay, some good stuff there from Mojo. Let's try a little more Millennial Wise. A 20-year-old woman who Colin had met at Mark's so PA conference posts her entire message thing we discussed earlier. The official oh, is that? She steadily became oh, angry and resentful towards me. Uh, then we got into a text conversation online. She okay. seemed very you read emotional. these out, right? As a result, I was very yeah. 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 We discussed this very at length. His persona on the public image he presents. To feel like a villain woes. You no. feel no. like you have become an evil person. No. <laughs> no, not at all. Uh, so I feel like you've, I've... you've been villainized, though, surely, but you don't feel oh, yeah. you're a villain. No, not at all. Um, I feel like I've been naive at times, definitely. But uh, So, essentially, he's played very little role in his own trouble. He's just been the victim. Come on, where is he? That's true, but not um, not a villain, no. This is this is a clip from Michael. He doesn't um, shake his arms. He like waddles along. This is just fucking nice. I thought you, I, I thought you walking. You seemed like a normal walker. Like I don't know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Apparently, yeah. doesn't his arms. Just some incredible. He he does waddle. Right? It's not it's not an absurd description. Holy hard hitting shit from Michael here. Yeah. yeah. At one point, at one point in that conversation, he also claims that he slapped me at a house party. That he just slapped me across the face. This is just fucking nonsense. This made up drivel. Okay, I want to give Millennial Woes credit. He is not a nasty guy. He's not a vindictive guy. He doesn't pursue absurd feuds. He seems like a, a perfectly fun guy to sit down and share a beer with. channel and makes videos calling you gay, etc. It might not be a self-destructive art. It might just be intellectual curiosity. So I don't know what to say. Whatever I say, he will just laugh. Is the video really entitled? Was entitled "Chain Smoking Alcoholic Homosexual"? Is that the original yes. title? Yes, because some guy—that was a direct quote from some guy um, in the comments section—who said it really comes to something when a, we have to rely on a chain-smoking alcoholic homosexual. Okay, if uh, Millennial Woes is a chronic abuser of women, which I am not asserting, I assure—I would suspect that these particular women would have played a substantial role in their own troubles as well. Right, the type of women that I was sleeping with, generally speaking, were not you know, really wise, smart women you know, going in a good direction in life. They were as equally damaged, as equally messed up as I was at the time. For conservatism, because he thought that I was homosexual, and he thought that I was well, I was chain smoking, and he thought that every time I took a drink, I was drinking alcohol. A lot of these things, not either or. Right? Millennial woes isn't either homosexual or straight, right? People are frequently a combination. In certain circumstances, they're gay, and in other circumstances, they're straight. Beer or something. Oh, okay. So I must be an alcoholic. So, oh, here's here's a yeah. reading betraying you. I never knew him. 
I don't, again, I don't. I think that's a bit un, uh, unrepresentative because he he really we, we, he says something like I don't talk to Wolves much. We're not we're not really in contact, and that was the truth. Um, we didn't. We never ever had a big. I mean, I wouldn't say we had a friendship, uh, me and Arini. Um, we talked like maybe once a year. Uh, so he was actually just saying the truth there. There's this uh, Twitter conversation leak going around the fortune. Yeah, yeah. And that was the other thing that, that quote there from about that quote there about Brittany. I asked Brittany, "Is that true? Have I been inappropriate with you?" And she said, "No, that's it's just nonsense." So someone had just made up that they talked to her. It's not unknown that women will say, "Oh, that guy was inappropriate," and then when the guy questions her about it, she says, "Oh no, I didn't say that." Right? That's a very common female thing. So Lenny Wise has a fairly shallow understanding, I think, of this situation. Um, yeah, it happens. So I'll pause it. It's kind of a. Well, yeah. I think you're in this clip. Bring it back like ten right. seconds. <laughs> Did they say circumcision fetish? Is that yeah. what, I mean? <laughs> what a base red pill no. leader? Take me no. to the promised land. Uh, yes. So what I want to know is, I think, uh, you said I was in one of these, right? And it's it's a big compliment to Millennial Woes that he gets this much attention, this much critique. Right? People wouldn't bother critiquing or criticizing Millennial Woes if he didn't matter. Right? Millennial Woes gets a fair amount of attention, a fair amount of critiquing, including from me, right? Because he does matter. He plays an important role in the lives of thousands of people. He is very good at live streaming. He is much better at the medium of live streaming than I am. Right? He's much better at creating videos than I am. He is a much better YouTuber. He's a much better e-personality than I am. Right? The reason he gets this much attention is because he's so good at what he does. JF understood immediately what had happened. I didn't even talk to him about it. He uh, he surmised it all for himself. And I watched his his stream where he talked about it. And it was like he understood immediately. <laughs> I don't know how he, he got it, but he just did. It's a weird place to put this. I think in the dock, like midway through, when he was like he brought it up. Should have been like the moment. See, see that bit there. See, pause that. Right. That's her. Ask, that's her asking to or suggesting that we spend another night together. And I said, since you're upset. Would it be a good idea for you? Do you not think it would be harmful for you to spend another night with me since you're upset that we can't have a relationship? So that's an example. So when damaged people bounce off each other, there's often more damage created. And don't stick it in crazy. I mean, generally speaking, you should try to have as little to do with crazy, destructive, damaged people as possible. You should minimize their role in your life because they will just mess it up. Full of me. See, this is what it was like, right? It wasn't like she started accusing me of assaulting her. It was much more all over the place. So, and, and that's me being nice, saying, no, I don't think we should. I, I like the yeah. idea too, but I don't think it would be good for you because we're not going to have a relationship. So let's not, you know, yeah, I don't want to. would be, yeah. So, exactly. Yeah. So this is another example of the. the like the twisting of the. Yeah, the, yeah, the, exactly. And shit. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. So why, if you were innocent completely, why you wouldn't just end the video at 28 seconds? I don't know what you're going to address that. Why did you make, like, I think it was like a 20 minute long video about why didn't you just declare your innocence and, like, just move on from there? That's, that's his that's point a, in that video. That, that's a good question. And in retrospect, like, now I would just do that. Nowadays, I would just keep it as simple as fucking possible. I just say, I refute the allegations. That'd be it. Um, for whatever. Well, right now, I've got eight viewers on Rumble and only seven on YouTube. And uh, I'm not going to let it go to my head. Reason, perhaps because it had grown so much and it had been. And that was the other thing I meant to say earlier. The lawyers told me when I consulted these three different lawyers, every one of them said to me, say nothing about it yeah. publicly. 
say nothing because anything that you say can be misconstrued. And this is a, they said that this is a thing that men do when they have been accused of something, they'll say something and then that will be seen to inform the allegation and whatever. That's true. Lawyers won't, generally speaking, in this kind of situation, tell you to say nothing. But uh, Millennial Woes thought he knew better than the lawyers he paid for. So just say nothing. And I think that would be good advice for someone who was an ordinary member of the public. But for, oh, a, for a public yeah, figure, it was fucking terrible advice. Because oh, of course, he because I wasn't saying anything about it, he transcends. Well, he must be guilty. Yeah. Because, he because otherwise, he would just talk, he would just say, he would just talk about it. So the strenuous advice from lawyers was just keep silent. So I did, and of course that backfired. So that was why I eventually and and that like the and, and he's always the victim. Right? He followed his lawyer's advice and it backfired. Rumors to grow and all this bollocks about other things. So then I thought, okay, I've got to address all of this, and so that was why I did a twenty-minute video. But as you say, it would have been better just to keep it very simple. Yeah. Oh, it would have been better to actually follow the lawyer's advice. Right. That's that's the implicit statement. Terrible general Waltz, HPV. Who on earth would look to millennial words for guidance? It's bitter Scottish meat. What do we reckon millennial words smells <laughs> like? I mean, he does have a good voice. God, listen, I'll give him. Do you characterise yourself as a bitter Scottish meat? No, Scottish is true. Neat was true. Bitter, no. So who would look to millennial woes for, for guidance? Whether we like it or not, all of us are heroes to somebody. So you know, I may think, oh, millennial woes is not a good hero. He's not a good uh, moral guide to life. But the fact is, he plays or has played an important role in the lives of thousands of people. Right? We, we may think it ridiculous that an athlete has such a huge influence over hundreds of thousands of people, and they often are affected by things he says and does. But that's reality, right? We're all heroes to someone. We can try to say, oh, I'm not a hero. We can try to step away from the responsibility. But that's not true to reality, right? You're a hero to someone. In, in different circumstances, you're, you're heroic to different people. They look up to you. In certain circumstances, some people look up to me. In other circumstances, people look up to Millennial Woes. In other circumstances, people look up to Andy Worski. And there's no way of getting away from the fact that we are having an effect on other people. Oh, not even after all this fucking nonsense. Empty cans of Coke that are full of piss and fag ash. <laughs> yeah, why hire an attorney if you're not going to follow their advice? It's like, why ask your orthodox rabbi for an opinion if you're not going to follow it. There are empty cans of coal full of piss and No, sorry. I've never been quite that degenerate. He has warts. He has sex with gay men. Okay, listen. I was probably reading something. I know. I understand. Ah, shit. That's awkward. Okay, I gotta ask. Is Monica a person that actually exists? Or is that fabrication? Woman that That was someone from my past, but because that involves other people, I don't want to talk about that. That's I. Yeah, that was someone from my past. Oh. The claim was that you gave her warts, but you said... Okay, we have uh, Colin Liddell in the chat. Uh, Colin Liddell, how's it going, mate? Yeah, hi, Luke. How are you? I'm good, man. It's uh, been a long time since we, I've spoken to you. Yeah, I think it's been a few months. So uh, you're, you're back in Australia. I sure am. I'm in Sydney and uh, loving it. It's, uh, so uh, yeah, it sounds like you're going to uh, eventually you're going to eventually end up staying there. I feel maybe you're right. There's certainly a higher quality of life here. I mean, there's just virtually no crime. <laughs> there's there's like very little anger and social dislocation and people being at each other's throats. 
Yeah, I guess the uh, kind of safety factor becomes uh, more important as you get older. Yeah, yeah, and and just like feeling at ease and and comfortable, right? I think that also becomes more important as, as you get older. There's less need for extreme adventure. Yeah, um, but I, I see you're still. Um, keeping an eye on uh, things in in America and um, around the rest of the world. Yes, uh, a little bit. Uh, the, the news in Australia is so boring because uh, nothing nothing's going on. So an interesting election in, in America. We, we don't really know if if Republicans are even going to take the House of Representatives, though in all likelihood they will. I'd say you know over a ninety percent chance that we'll have divided government. Republicans will take the House of Representatives. They also dominate the U.S. Supreme Court. Looks like uh, Democrats are going to retain control of the U.S. Senate. But overall, surprisingly poor showing for Republicans, better than expected showing for, for Democrats. A- any reaction to what happened with the midterm elections, Colin? Uh, I did. Yeah, actually, I wrote a piece back in August, which kind of sort of predicted this. Uh, I thought that, uh, yeah, there were certain elements attached to the Republican Party that would um, kind of put off the uh, uh, the independents or the floating voters, as, as uh, British people call them. And so, yeah, I thought that um, Trump was having a kind of positive and negative effect and sort of cancelling out the... Um, easy gains that the the Republicans should have made. And also the issue of abortion probably played a role that uh, this has been a unifying issue for Republicans, but it's overall an election losing thing. Uh, yeah, it's hard. To, it's really hard to say. I mean, you have to go into these things in depth and, um, you know, um, I think a lot of people um, seem to have voted Republican while also um, supporting kind of pro-abortion measures. So, yeah, I just think that um, um, American politics, it's uh, it's becoming a bit of uh, it's it's becoming dominated by the 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 kind of um, messy middle. Yeah, and so the consensus is that these elections were bad for Trump. And so I think both you and I have a lot of skepticism of, you know, temporary who's up and who's down style of, of political analysis for, for all we know, you know, tomorrow Trump could be heading up. But do you think there's any important trajectory with regard to Donald Trump and the Republican Party and the wider American electorate? Um. Yeah, well, I think, uh, yeah, it looks like um, now there's a bit of a civil war going on in in the uh, Republican Party. I mean, uh, Trump has come out quite strongly against DeSantis. Uh, He's trying to um, kind of finish off DeSantis before DeSantis becomes the obvious choice for the 2024 presidential. Um, I think DeSantis is probably just going to play it cool and let uh, Trump blow himself out. And uh, there's a lot of people who are, who are probably thinking Trump's maybe a bit too old now. He's a bit—he's sort of embarrassing himself. The people who liked his shtick before 
are probably less impressed by it now. So, um, yeah, it's it's, it's going to probably not be Trump, I think. And do you have any perspective on, on Ron DeSantis? I've, I've read several in-depth profiles of him. He seems, honestly, very unlikable on a personal level. People who work for him don't like him. People who interact with him don't like him. So he seems to be this combination of competence, uh, high intelligence, uh, tremendous ambition uh, with a lack of self-awareness and a lack of likability. Uh, yeah, the likability thing. I mean, who's who's actually likable? I mean, I, I'm pretty – I mean, Trump's likable from a distance, but I don't think you'd actually like to – um, work under under Trump either, you know what I mean? So a lot of these people, they just do seem rather unlikable or um, kind of boring or kind of bland close up. I mean, that's probably what it takes to be a politician. You you have to be a bit of a freak. So I don't I don't see anybody else being very unlikable. Uh, sorry, very likable. So um, yeah, I'm, I'm not really impressed by DeSantis. Uh, he doesn't seem to be um, an interesting personality. Like you say, he does seem to be kind of competent. He, he does seem to be uh, running his state quite well, I guess. Again, I'd have to look at, at that in greater detail to be sure. Um, but things do seem to be going in his in his uh, direction. It would it would be nice if somebody else could come along who had like real charisma, um, and who was quite likable, and who who was offering something new. But um, American politics is really quite arid and uh, devoid of, um, you know, uh, interesting characters besides Trump, who's a very flawed character, obviously. So I mean, it seems – go ahead. No, I, I'm just thinking about it from things from the Democrat side. They're, they're really stuck as well. I don't see who they can really go with. I mean, if um, – if Biden's a problem because of his age and other factors, then uh, you know who else is who else have they got? So they don't seem to have very many prospects. So yeah, it is quite a, a depressing picture in terms of um, um, you know candidate talent. So, so there was a an essay in the Atlantic magazine a couple of weeks ago that got some resonance. It, it was a, it was a plea to have. Uh, to to let go of feuding over COVID, so that whatever perspective you took on COVID and lockdowns and, and vaccination, let's not have any recrimination. And so there seems to be, at least on a popular level, as opposed to the elite and scientific level, kind of a, a growing recognition that the lockdowns were too extensive, too intrusive, too much, overdone, and that people like Ron DeSantis who did not order Florida into lockdown and certainly you know, got out of it sooner than almost anyone else. But it uh, seems to be, at least in, in popular terms, that there's, there's growing awareness that the Ron DeSantis-type approach was, was the right one. Uh, I'm not saying that it was scientifically, definitively. I'm just saying that that seems to be a vote winner. Do you have any thoughts? Um. Yeah, yeah. I mean, we did. Um, I think our our societies have become um, 
over feminized and we we place a lot of uh, stress on harm avoidance and safety things like that and probably too much and um of course when covid came out uh people did err very very strongly on the side of uh, caution and uh, in retrospect uh, obviously they 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 did everything quite wrongly i think um i think um in most countries, I'm, I'm, I'm sort of um, thinking here mainly of the UK, though. The UK really um, did too much, I think, and that's kind of had serious knock-on effects. It's caused a lot of uh, economic instability, political instability. Uh, the UK is struggling with all sorts of budgetary issues now. Uh, I think um, they're going to have a, uh, a statement uh, from the Chancellor quite soon about uh, severe spending cuts and uh, tax raises and things like that. And this is all because of the uh, furlough scheme that they had, uh, which paid people uh, during the uh, crisis so they could have a very, very long and extensive lockdown. Um, at the time, it was very, very hard to um, judge just how bad uh, COVID was going to be. So... I think uh, we should be quite generous in in uh, how we how we uh, judge people about COVID, but uh, I think the general problem is that we uh, we have we live in these um, very overfeminized societies which um, place much too uh, much too much uh, emphasis on safety. There's there may also be a growing sense that <clears throat> the Brexit has been a disaster for, for Britain. I mean, it's certainly trimmed economic growth. It's certainly not been a good thing for for Britain's economy. You, do you have any thoughts on whether or not Brexit has been a disaster for Great Britain? Um, I don't think it really has been a, a disaster. Of course, that's the partisan view of people who emotionally want to be in Europe and uh, they will say that and uh, they'll, they'll do confirmation bias and, and select certain things which prove their um, emotional uh, predilections. Um, I, I think that the, the um, you know, it's, you could say that uh, Brexit was, was quite good for, for Britain in some ways. Uh, Britain was, um, because we were not tied to Europe, the country was able to to roll out um, vaccines much earlier and more e- efficiently than the rest of Europe. Uh, economically, it's kind of hard to say what the uh, the situation is, but uh, you know, the the good thing about Brexit is it, it places Britain in a position where it can make its own decisions, and um, you know, the um, the connection to Europe is still actually providing a, a kind of drag on what Britain does. I mean, one thing that uh, is uh, a big issue in Britain now is the uh, illegal migrant or refugee crisis with people crossing the channel in uh, rubber boats from France. And I think there's been about 40,000 people in one year crossing uh, directly from France to, to England in, in rubber boats. And uh, one of the reasons the British can't get uh, on top of this crisis is because the European Court of Human Rights, to which Britain still kind of uh, signed up, has uh, declared its uh, immigration policy illegal. Mm. And 
what do you think of the prospects for Rishi Sunak? We're looking at probably no better than a 20% chance of, of the, the Tories getting re-elected in the, in the next election. Is that fair to say? Uh, yeah, yeah, I don't think, um, uh, yeah, I mean, I think, um, you know, it's, you know, Rishi's a nice boy, um, he's doing his best, he's, he's, he's obviously a kind of quite a smart person, um, he's probably, probably running the economy as, as, you know, reasonably well, given the, um, the kind of circumstances and what, uh, the, the kind of cards, uh, he's, he's been dealt. And, you know, some people actually say he dealt his own cards because he was, uh, the chancellor when, uh, the, um, when Boris Johnson's furlough scheme was going out. So, you know, he's, he's trying to do a kind of, uh, efficient, uh, managerial job, I, I think. Um, but even if he does a very good job, yeah, you know, it's um, there aren't going to be a lot of um, you know difficult decisions, and uh, you know, right now I think Britain's sort of heading into a kind of general strike almost. There's a lot of um, public sector workers coming out on strike, and uh, you know various other workers demanding all sorts of uh, unrealistic uh, pay rises. And, uh, you know, this is, of course, uh, some of the economic blowback from COVID, of course, you know, because uh, they spent too much money and uh, it's caused inflation and now everybody, everybody wants a pay rise. So it's a very difficult to manage, uh, you know, um, year and a half that he has before the next election. Uh, it's very uh, difficult to see him coming out on top of this. I also think um, people are not quite happy having a prime minister who's obviously a foreigner um you know they um, of course you're not allowed to to say that you're not allowed to express your political incorrectness but uh, these these things don't really go away just because people are not allowed to talk about them so i think um for all sorts of reasons you'd have to say that the chances of rishi sunak and the conservative party uh doing well at the next election are quite low and uh, you know that won't won't even be entirely down to the performance of the government. And Labour are not particularly no, they're not doing particularly well either. I mean, of course, in the opinion polls, Labour's kind of riding high, but uh, most people don't seem to be very impressed by uh, Keir Starmer either. You know, so. So uh, he's not exactly uh, generating a lot of excitement. This is this is not like uh, Tony Blair in 1997. You know, when Tony Blair came in in 1997, it was a massive swing to the Labour Party. There was a, a lot of enthusiasm about him. Of course, obviously, it was misplaced enthusiasm because uh, Tony Blair was a disaster in lots of ways. But, um, you know, there was a real feeling at the time that something big was going to happen. And you don't see any of that with the Labour Party uh, today. Um, so it's it's a different kind of politics. It's, it's sort of like um, uh, there's a kind of like an anti-politics going on now, both in the UK and America, where... Um, you know, there's there's just there's no charisma, there's no real enthusiasm, there's no real thrill anymore, and people kind of are just um, lack voting in a very lackluster kind of way, and usually for negative reasons.
Now, Rishi Sunak seems competent. Is that fair? Yeah, yeah. I think I kind of emphasized that earlier. Yeah, he's a, he seems like a competent uh, kind of nerdy little guy. Yeah, good for him. I, I mean, and, and we're talking about competence at an extremely difficult job at an extremely difficult time in the nation's history. So this isn't like ordinary levels of competence. This is this is a very difficult situation that he finds himself in. Yeah, I was kind of hoping that you know Liz Truss would still be there. It would be much more of an exciting roller coaster. You know, Liz and Quasi Quartang. That was kind yes. of shaping up to be a bit of fun. I thought, you know, I was uh, kind of disappointed when Rishi came in. You know, it just um, took the heat off everything. And the the prospects for Britain just seem quite dim. Not not just in the immediate term, but but in, in the long term, I mean, Britain has a lot of work to do to try to establish a viable path forward. Is that fair? Um, I don't, that, that sounds overly negative. What are you kind of uh, thinking of when you say that? Well, they've suffered tremendously economically from leaving Brexit. I, I don't believe they ever attained a special trade deal with the United States. So they're neither in Europe nor having the equivalent of a free trade deal with, with the United States. And so I, I just don't see the, the, the path forward for, for Great Britain. It just seems, I just don't see where the country goes from here. But I think all the economic problems um, are, are due to um, COVID and the, the lockdown and uh, the government spending too much money on the furlough scheme. Um, I don't think uh, there's any other real problem. I mean, um, Britain's economy is not uh, like other countries' economies. It's a kind of um, sub-imperial economy. Um, it's based upon its its uh, relationship to the um, the present world order, and its uh, relationship to America is, is important. But um, its um, participation in the EU was causing conflict and problems with that i felt um with regard to the eu it was a net importer on a very large scale and so it does have a lot of um it does have a lot of leverage with europe as well so i, I don't think um things are particularly negative about its uh, you know economic picture uh, the british economy uh, before brexit was um mainly an importer, uh, which was exporting services, and uh, it's still it's, you know, in the same position. And uh, anything about the war in Ukraine that has attracted your interest and attention since the last couple of months? Uh, well, I think um, almost everything that happens seems to confirm... Uh, my early view of the war, and my my early view of the war was, that, uh, you know, the Russians uh, were over overreaching. They were, um, you know, the, the 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 Russians struggled for almost twenty years uh, to to sort of get a get control of the uh, the Chechen problem, and uh, you know, Chechnya. If if anybody knows about it, 
it's a dot on the map. You hardly see it if you look at a map of uh, Russia. It's it's a tiny place. Its population is tiny. I think it's about a million and a half people in Chechnya. And it took the Russian military and political system um, about almost 20 years to, to get on top of the situation. And... Um, you know, the, one of the the way they were able to do that finally was by granting the Chechens all sorts of privileges within the uh, the Russian Empire, and this is the same country that thought it could kind of breeze in and um, sort of take over most of the Ukraine, <laughs> and this is after several years where you know the, the the Ukrainian military was being trained and prepared and armed by uh, you know the Western Alliance. And so I was pretty confident that um, the Russian army wouldn't do quite so well as uh, a lot of the uh, kind of Putin chuds thought uh, in, in those early days. So, yeah, um, the Russian army has never really been very good militarily. Uh, if you look at the, the whole history of um, Ru the Russian military uh, endeavor over the, the decades and centuries, it's all, they've always been... Um, quite poor performers and always with high casualty rates and their only asset is they, they can throw away human lives at a very high rate that uh, you know other countries would uh, blanch at yeah and what about uh, both, both Russia and Europe are in a kind of a nasty way I mean Europe badly needs Russian energy. Uh, Russia is you know, suffering tens of thousands of casualties and has been sanctioned uh, fairly effectively. Uh, who, who do you expect to to blink first between Russia and and Europe in this confrontation over Ukraine? Um, yeah, that's that's a hard one, though. Um... Well, I, I I think um, the the power structure, the if you like global power structure, is still very much in force. Uh, the European countries, the NATO countries, they're they're still on board with America. America is still on board with uh, standing up to Russia. And that would not have been affected much, even if the Republicans had made significant uh, advances. Uh, I think with the recent election, you, you, uh, that's a real signal that the status quo is completely unchanged with, with regard to Russia. And so America and Europe are probably more united than they have been for some time. And uh, they are going to... Uh, do what they can to face down Russia. It's going to be very hard for um, countries like uh, Germany or France to find a kind of independent uh, middle way in that. They're going to be more or less uh, pushed along the um, the route of uh, standing up to Russia, even though they might sometimes have some, uh, you know, doubts and, uh, you know... <laughs> some sort of, um, you know, third positionist lean-ins there. So I think um, eventually the uh, the weight of the, the West and the global system will uh, make uh, Russia blink. And I think there are signs of that. Um, 
I think the Chinese have come out quite uh, strongly against uh, Russia thinking about using tactical nuclear weapons. And the Russians do seem to be um, fighting a less ambitious war now. They seem to be on the back foot trying to hold on to some of the uh, their earlier gains against uh, a more aggressive and assertive uh, Ukraine. And so their their policy kind of reminds me a little bit of the um the the Japanese policy in World War II. And in World War II the Japanese quickly expanded over a, a large area and then their policy was to um to bleed uh, the Western powers through defensive warfare. And they thought that uh, if they could um, make the Americans suffer enough through defensive warfare, then the Americans would uh, finally decide to um, cut a deal with them. And the Russians seem to be uh, adopting a broadly similar policy, like uh, they've taken over, um, you know, parts of the Ukraine, the uh, this kind of corridor, this land corridor uh, along the Sea of Azov. And they think that, uh, you know, uh, if we just defend this hard enough and make uh, the Ukrainians bleed enough, eventually there'll be some sort of compromise in our favor. So that's what they're trying to, to pull off. Um, but given the poor quality of the Russian military, the um, the, the um, sort of military supply issues that they've had, and uh, the amount of uh, quite advanced tech flowing into the Ukraine, I think uh, the, U- the Ukrainians might be able to um, sort, of, uh, sort of flip a lot of their positions, and uh, that could end quite badly for the Russians. And uh, what's been going on in Japan that's uh, captured your interest over the last few months? Well, earlier I was referring to the sort of anti-politics that we uh, see in the West, you know, like in Britain and America. You know, there's a lack of enthusiasm for um, the, um, the, the politicians who are, uh, in power and uh, challenging for power. Well, you know, Japan is the perfect um, example of uh, anti-politics. It's been an anti-politics country for uh, as long as I can remember. Uh, whoever is prime minister is always unpopular, but uh, there's nobody else outside the, the positions of power who is popular. So, you know, things just kind of trundle along with um sort of a mild feeling of uh, discontent. And uh, the present uh, prime minister seems to be um, unpopular now. And, you know, because of the um, the Abe assassination, this sort of threw up the um, connection between the LDP and the Moonies. And uh, this is something that's still bubbling along. And uh, the uh, present government seems to be uh, being blamed for its connection to the Moonies. And uh, this is causing, I think it caused some minister to to resign recently. But, uh, you know, I just find Japanese politics extremely uh, tedious and boring. So, I, I, you know, I seldom wish to discuss it. Now, it's interesting. The assassin of Abe essentially got what he wanted, a national conversation and scrutiny of the Unification Church and its ties with politicians. Yeah, yeah, that's true. Um, if he hadn't done that, 
um, you know, this would obviously be ignored by the media, but uh, it's sort of given the story legs and uh, it, it keeps going, this story that uh, the LDP is somehow in cahoots with the Moonies and probably there's not really that much uh, there. I mean, all political parties are quite happy to take, um, you know, money from all sorts of, you know, groups. It doesn't necessarily mean that they're controlled and owned by them, though. And anything going on with, with China that's captured your attention over the past few months? Um, yeah, I think uh, I think there was a, a bit of hysteria about um, China in the West. Uh, there seemed to be this idea that uh, you know, uh, you know, um, in connection with the the latest uh, Communist Party conference. There was this idea that, uh, you know, Xi Jinping had become ruler for life. He was this new um, uh, Mao Zedong character bent upon confrontation and possibly even conflict with the with the West. And, of course, this was tied into um, the war in the Ukraine. And uh, there was the idea that, uh, you know, the West was, was uh, fully stretched dealing with Russia so it couldn't possibly do anything about China taking over Taiwan. And now was a good time for China to strike and take over Taiwan, blah, blah, blah. So there's this kind of um, rather hysterical estimation of what was going on. And uh, this led to a lot of people um, being worried about investments in China and uh, decoupling from China. And I think um, that's sort of going away now. And uh, people are calming down again, and they're realizing once again that uh, nothing really has changed. I mean, China's still making ninety-five uh, percent of your iPhones. Uh, China's still mass-producing Tesla cars and so on. So, you know, I think it's pretty much uh, you know um, a realization that things have not really changed, and that. Um, uh, Xi Jinping is a much more um, kind of sensible and intelligent uh, leader than, say, Vladimir Putin at, at the moment. Hmm. And uh, have you paid any attention to the Kino Casino? Oh, yeah, yeah. I sometimes watch that. And uh, I see they had my old friend, Millennial Woes, on recently. So, yeah, I did uh, sort of dip into that. And do you have any thoughts or impression of uh, Kino Casino? Um, yeah, I mean, I think they're they're trying to provide a critique of certain personalities, um, you know, in the dissident right. And, uh, yeah, I, I would say that uh, the PPP guy, the big fat guy, he's quite talented, he's quite intelligent, and sometimes they do quite good content. And sometimes, um, you know, I think the problem is that they uh, they do these uh, these quite long streams and uh, they go on and on for hours and hours. And sometimes the quality dips. Uh, but sometimes it, the quality is quite good and uh, quite interesting. Of course, there's a lot of, there's, there's all these issues about Andy Worski and what he's uh, doing off camera. Um, so, yeah, it's it's just part of the the great big colourful shit show that is is the uh, dissident right. So um, I've got nothing against it, and I find some of it kind of amusing and, and interesting. 
And I think the show they did on uh, Millennial Woes was quite good. Um, of course, it was a friendly kind of interview, but they did ask him some uh, kind of hardball questions from time to time, mainly about his gay past. And uh, what's what's the latest on Millennial Woes to the extent that you're aware? I mean, where is he in his journey? Um, well, I think the real story with Millennial Woes is the growing irrelevance of his take on things um you know he has a he he developed a kind of very conspiratorial sort of red ice radio view of the world and uh, you know that's the path that he chose to go down and uh, so his uh, his takes are increasingly lame and uh, conspiratorial and uh, you know that's fine there's a lot of people who like that uh it's a, a rel- relatively easy way to maintain an audience with uh, low intellectual input so i'd say that's where he's at um personally you know the uh, personal story hasn't changed much we all know that uh, you know millennial was his you know, tragic story 10 years in his basement um after going to art college and being disgusted by London's multiculturalism and then slowly emerging into the day of light uh, through his um, YouTube channel and his very frank and, um, uh, you know, kind of heart-wrenching videos. And uh, then from there, he's, he managed to build up quite an audience. And then he had these uh, scandals, uh, quotation marks, where he was um, being accused of all sorts of things by these women and uh, so it hasn't really changed beyond that. I mean, the, the basic uh, millennial woes uh, timeline and storyline is quite well established, and nothing. There's nothing really new there. It's not like he suddenly got married and had uh, had a lot, a lot of kids, you know. So, um, but uh, I think the real story is that uh, his his critique, his view of the world, hasn't really gone anywhere, and it's actually. Um, in, in several ways deteriorated. I mean, I occasionally have a quick listen to um, a gram of woes to see what sort of takes he has. And it's, it's, it's sort of embarrassing, some of the, 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 the kind of low-quality, um, paranoid nature of a lot of these uh, takes. Yeah, and he seems to embody a very common phenomenon that a lot of people say become red-pilled on some aspect of reality that is denied in the media, that they realize that they've been lied to about X or Y, and then they just assume that they're being lied to about everything and become paranoid and conspiratist, and uh, they increasingly lose touch with reality and become less effective. It's it's amusing that being red-pilled leads so many people to becoming less effective at dealing with reality. Yeah, that's true. And, you know, uh, this is a problem that um, people who live stream too much have is, you know, when you talk that much, you you don't really have time for, um, you know, like reading and thinking and understanding the world. You know, you're too busy um, presenting your view of the world to actually have a sensible view of the world. Yeah, that's absolutely true. But I, I think what's even five times, ten times more powerful 
is audience capture. That, that when you live stream and you have any success whatsoever, in all likelihood, if you're a live streamer, you're probably socially maladjusted to begin with. Then you get some positive feedback from an audience, which becomes far more intoxicating because you're far more vulnerable to it than, than a normal person. And then you are captured by your audience and you don't want to say or do anything that will upset them. So you're, you become you know, your audience's poodle and then it's a lot easier to get a lower IQ audience than a higher IQ audience. And this seems to be a very familiar path for, for many uh, alt-right uh, live streamers. And it's not something from which I've been exempt either. Well, I think uh, in your case, you've you've kind of um, been aware of it at least, and you've uh, tried to deal with it. And uh, I think you've um, you know, you've made some kind of uh, quite good choices uh, to avoid falling into the usual pitfalls. So you know, you know, uh, kudos to you there, Luke. <laughs> thanks, thanks, Colin. But uh, do you agree with my analysis that probably the the most powerful intoxicant is for many podcasters and dissidents is developing an audience that is generally socially maladjusted types who devote so much to live streaming and podcasting. And then because they're maladjusted, they're even more vulnerable to the intoxicating effect of having an audience. And this tends to lead them into a negative spiral. Yeah, I know what you're saying, and I know where you want to go. And, you know, I'm inclined to kind of generally agree with you. But uh, I really think uh, um, I don't want to overemphasize the emotional and psychological drivers of um, content creators. I think uh, content creators should really focus on the content, uh, the quality of the content, the uh, the data in the content, the logic of their ideas, Things like that. I think, uh, you know, you can have all sorts of weird emotional drives to do what you do. Uh, but, you know, I think finally content should be king and uh, the quality of the content should should really be the, uh, the, the, the preeminent factor. Like, is what you're saying true? Is what you're saying valid? Is what you're saying a, a, an accurate description of the world? That's that's cre- really the key for me. And you might have all sorts of twisted, sick, uh, you know, uh, psychological and sexual <laughs> reasons for, uh, you know, uh, exploring and pushing into this content. But it's like the actual content. What what and uh, what the thing that you're saying? Uh, what are you actually saying? And does it actually you know bear exposure to reality? Have you experienced audience capture? I mean, you've had more than your share of success at times, so you've always aimed at a much higher IQ audience than most of the people we we talk about. But have you had the experience of struggling with audience capture? Um, It's not not been my focus, to be honest. Um, You know, I really want to work out my own ideas uh, for my own benefit and anybody else who might be interested, but I'm not really too focused on the audience. I mean, over the years, I have had uh, various kinds of audiences. And, uh, you know, I have to say the quality of my own audiences has been quite poor. Um, I mean, there are, there have been intelligent people who have uh, consumed my content, who have commented on my content, but they have always been very much in the minority uh, it's been much more a question of, uh, you know, uh, bat, batting off the trolls. Hmm. And you mentioned 
Richard Spencer's wife uh, visited you in Japan and there were rumors about that uh, relationship. So what the hell, what, what has been your relationship with Richard Spencer's wife? Well, um, let's just say my relationship with uh, Richard Spencer's wife uh, took up a lot of um, space rent-free in his, his head for a, a number of years. I, I'm just thinking you've got you've got an advantage in that that you just seem so grounded compared to most of the people that we're we're talking about. Like I've never seen you or heard you or read you coming from an unhinged place. Uh, is is that fair to say? Your, your emotions don't tend to slop over. Um. Well, yeah, I actually. Occasionally have have um, been unhinged. I have to say, yeah, once or twice. Um, yeah, I'd probably say that when I wrote um, uh, "Is Black Genocide Right?" Uh, quite uh, quite an interesting article. That I wrote a few years ago. I was probably mainly driven by my emotions, and at the time, I was I was reading a lot of content about uh, you know black on white uh, murders and tortures in South Africa. And so I was a bit um, emotionally um, propelled, let's say, by that to write that particular article. And I'd just like to say that particular article, it's, it's even though I wrote it in a slightly unhinged mood, it does still stand up as a, a decent article if you read it properly and honestly. Yeah, it's kind of sad that well, it's just the nature of reality that uh, anything like that article is is not going to be read properly or honestly by a large number of people. Is that fair? Yeah, that's definitely fair. So, yeah, always have a filter, you know, always um, have a have a delay button. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you have to. You always have to write knowing that there will be an enormous audience or, or some very capable, smart people looking to destroy you based on you know, deliberate misinterpretation of what you're saying. Yes, that's definitely been the case with uh, the dissident right and within the dissident right. I had, a, I think, a, a thought a few weeks ago that... Uh, much of Richard Spencer's trajectory can be accounted for by his theatrical background and theatrical nature. He's incredibly compelling as a as an as intellectual entertainment, meaning he's his voice, his manner has has just filled with drama. And he it talks about in high school he wanted his life ambition was to become a theater director. So everything we do affects us, and some things we do affect us more than others. So I think people would have you know, greater understanding and, and more empathy for, for Richard Spencer if they perhaps uh, accounted for, you can understand Richard by understanding that he is a theatrical producer, including of his own life. Is that fair? Mm, yeah, is that yeah. important? You're, you're trying to say he's a bit of a drama queen, aren't you? Yeah, that's an element of it. But just being a drama queen is not. It, he he lives life as theater. He, he's a Wagnerian, 
Nietzschean, you know, theater, theatrical type of person who wants to compel your attention. Uh, yeah, yes, yes, it's a, yeah, yes and no, you know, I mean, I think um, you've got to be careful with them, um, you know, when you try to kind of put people into uh, boxes and not to, you know, sort of shoehorn them in too much and, you know, there's also another side to, to Richard. He's sort of semi-autistic as well. So, you know, there's a kind of um, there's a kind of weird introvert-extrovert mix there. So he doesn't really fit a lot of the convenient categories, I'd say. Um, and I, I do think he has a genuine interest in ideas, and he's a very clever person. And so some of his ideas are actually quite interesting. But then there's a kind of um, also a... A uh, very emotional aspect to him, where he can he can be overwhelmed by certain things and certain connections and certain personalities, and so he's very very susceptible to 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 uh, leadership as well, uh, in the in the sense of being led. Which would all make sense for someone who's so theatrical. Yeah, possibly. Yeah, but uh, yeah, I mean, the idea of Richard as a kind of theatrical. Uh, kind of, um, what would you say? Yeah, some sort of. Uh, yeah, I think this is an interesting uh, film script you're you're writing there, Luke. You know, so you know, good luck with that. I, I just think that once you can like, just get a handle on someone's genre, right? I mean, Richard is a shock jock of, uh, and and like you, you don't blame Ben Shapiro for that. You know, being or one should not blame Ben Shapiro for not being a, a careful scholar. You know, he's a he's a, a shock jock, and and Richard's a shock jock, and Howard Stern's a shock jock, and Michael Savage is a shock jock. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, yes and no, but I think that behind a lot of these um, kind of otherwise uh, odd, interesting, and sometimes laughable uh, alt right and distant right characters, there are. There is a lot of genuine uh, concern and about the, the the world and the problems of the world and how to solve the problems of the world. And I, I would say, you know, millennial woes. You know, whatever uh, you you think of him, and uh, no no matter how uh, absurd you may think certain aspects of his uh, personal story may be, you know, he's actually a person who seems sincerely upset by real problems in the world. And I would say, you know, the same thing about somebody like like Richard Spencer and. Uh, even people who come to the wrong conclusions or who misanalyze the world, uh, a lot of these people on the distant right, they are actually trying to do something good and noble, uh, you know, when you get right down to it. And I think Richard is somebody who's tried to engage with the world and, um, you know, he's he's perceived there are problems with the world, there's problems with the West, there's problems with Western culture, and uh, these these um, underlying problems of of the culture and uh, the ideology of the West are things that have to be addressed. And he's uh, he's made his efforts to try to deal with them and to um, find a solution to some of these problems. And you might disagree with those, uh, you know, with that um, particular idea or solution. Uh, but I think we should also give these people credit for for at least trying to do something. Often at great, you know, personal sacrifice. Are you familiar with Toby Young? He's a writer for the Spectator in the United Kingdom. 
Oh yeah, yeah, I am familiar. Um, I have sometimes, you know, read uh, his columns or articles. Uh, he's just um, seems like a basic bitch libertarian to me, but uh, you know, he's he's quite an intelligent person. Most of the things that he says, uh, you can nod along to. Yeah, so he also exemplifies the the challenge of changing genres. So he was essentially a shock jock in in writing. He would he wrote a book uh, detailing you know all the stupid things he did when he was hired by Vanity Fair. He he's made you know, mocking himself his 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 trope his his you know, reliable go to for for getting published. And then he took on education reform a few years ago, and it didn't really take because he had, has this background of being this you know, ridiculous character who pokes fun of himself and says outrageous things and then calls himself out for his outrageous behavior. And then he tried to transition to being a, a genuine advocate for educational reform. And then he's tried to transition to being a, a thoughtful critic of lockdown uh, policies and he when he tries to delve into the statistics he, he tends to box them up so a lot of clowns like toby young made a career of being a clown but a lot of clowns eventually want to be taken seriously and it's not an easy transition and it may not even be in his wheelhouse of strengths i, I have no doubt that he does have some important things to say but he is not you know, a meticulous researcher. He's not you know, meticulously skilled with statistics and and academic analysis, and he just seems to embody the the, the great difficulty when you try to transition from from being a clown to being a serious thinker, and it doesn't quite take. Any thoughts on Toby Young and his trajectory? Well, it's probably a lot easier to do it the other way around, isn't it? To transition from a serious thinker to a clown. But uh, um, yeah, I think uh, you mentioned, I don't know really. Uh, yeah, I know uh, I know a little bit about Toby Young. I'm not so familiar with um, the things that you're referring to, but uh, you, you, you are mentioning that he decided to take a special interest in education. I imagine that's um, pretty much like a can of worms, you know, because uh, with them, um, education it's it's one of these um there's a lot of vested interests in education uh it's very very politicized uh it's very very dangerous to try to uh go into it and reform it this is one of the problems that the uk has and much more so than whether it's in the eu or not it's um these heavily centralized public sector areas like education like uh, the national health service things like that these these kind of uh, holdovers from the uh, 1940s nationalization and centralization of british society and because all these areas have become nationalized and centralized at some point in the past they're also very heavily unionized and therefore they're very very um difficult to reform and any attempt to reform to reform them usually uh, causes a, a complete shit storm of reaction so uh, i think that's probably the uh the, the problem that uh, toby young is sort of um uh, that toby toby young's efforts is exposing i i would say so 
uh, anything like I mean, the, the, the UK really needs root and branch uh, reform in certain key areas. But politically, it's almost impossible to achieve that. Mm-hmm. Uh, what do you think of the chances of Boris Johnson becoming a better than average prime minister one day? Uh, you mean by by being re-elected at some point, and then yeah, and then but being more confident than than he was during, say, his last year in office. Um, well, I, I mean, I never, I never bought into the idea that uh, Boris Johnson was uh, this terrible prime minister. I mean, he obviously had a lot of, uh, you know, curveballs uh, hurled at him, and uh, I think um, he didn't do a particularly bad job while he was uh, prime minister. Of course, you know, he, he was very limited in what he could do, being a Conservative Party uh, leader and so on. Um, the idea of uh, Boris Johnson returning to 10 down the street, that's, um, that seems a, a bit remote at the moment. But, of course, um, you have to think about where things are going. Um, probably Rishi Sunak's going to be destroyed at the next election. And then there will be a lot of uh, movement in the Conservative Party to, to sort of bring back uh, somebody like Boris, who is associated with uh, success. Uh, my analysis is that uh, you know Boris was a successful politician because he he got lucky with this kind of um, Brexit Brexit mood, and this enabled him to take over the Conservative Party, and it also enabled him to hoover up a lot of uh, normally uh, leftist or Labour votes. Um, whether he would be able to do that the the, the second time around, I, I kind of doubt. That that's probably one of the reasons why I uh, regret Boris being kicked out. I wanted to see what would have happened with Boris at the next election, and my guess was, uh, you know, with with Brexit out, sort of out of the way, uh, he would have done a lot less well with the voters. And so we can never really test that now. So I, I kind of have a feeling that uh, even if Boris does get back in, um, he wouldn't be that successful. And it's uh, the the reason, the, the the real reason for that is it's very very difficult for any prime minister to be successful with uh, the way that um, Britain is organised at the moment. Because, like I was just saying, uh, you know, with regard to Toby Young, the the country has several key areas that need very, very radical root and branch uh, reform to, to actually work well. And the political cost for delving into those areas is just so high that uh, the, the most successful prime ministers are the ones who can ignore the most pertinent issues. Now, you did a long take on Stefan Molyneux. Was that, was that fun? Do you, you find him an enjoyable person to listen to. What, what's your reaction to Stefan Molyneux? Uh, yeah, that's more like a kind of um, a rehash of an older piece, uh, just updating it. And, yeah, I mean, um, Stefan's kind of faded, I, I would say. I mean, he does. I'm sure he still exists. I'm sure he still produces uh, a lot of content. I'm sure his content is generally quite good. But, uh, yeah, he sort of um, 
I think he's been a bit discredited by, uh, amongst other things, the uh, the crypto mess because he was quite heavily into pushing crypto at one point, and now that just looks like uh, kind of grifting on his part. Hmm. I, I see a growing spate of articles about uh, loneliness among men that. This is particularly a problem in America and United Kingdom. And I would think because America and the United Kingdom, particularly individualist societies, as opposed to France, Germany, or Japan, that it might make sense that there's more loneliness in the United States and the United Kingdom than in, than in continental Europe or East Asia. Do you have any thoughts on the purported loneliness crisis among American and, and British men? Um, <clears throat> well, no, nah, this, I mean, obviously this is a, uh, a long-standing problem and it's one that's often emphasized with, uh, you know, the, with uh, the recent age and, uh, with people being on the internet and, uh, uh, the incel problem and things like that. So, so yeah, yeah. I mean, it is a, lo- a long-standing problem, but I don't have anything specifically new to say about that, except that uh, you know people should, um, you know, do the obvious and um, try to to uh, you know get out get out of their bubbles. Yeah. Okay, Carla. Thanks so much for stopping by the show. Appreciate the opportunity to talk to you again. Okay, it's been fun, Luke. Take care. Okay. Bye. Take care. Bye. Bye. Okay, just an amazing article in the New York Times where Toure, right, this writer with just a one-word name, talks about how wonderful it is for Blacks to self-segregate. So he said, years ago, I was taught the value of Black safe spaces. Can, can you imagine an op-ed in the New York Times praising the value of you know, white safe spaces? And I was writing a story for Rolling Stone about the Black Lives Matter movement. In my time with Black Lives Matter, I learned that they very consciously prioritize self-care as a bulwark against the impact of racism on their spirit. Well, couldn't you make the, the same argument for any group, that any group, particularly in a diverse nation, uh, they will feel renewed and, and generally happier when they're hanging out primarily with their own group and when they self-segregate. But uh, only for some groups is this regarded as virtuous and a good thing. It's like, this is self-care. Can you imagine if white people decided to self-segregate? Would that be called uh, self, self-care? So Black Lives Matter knew that if they didn't regularly take time out to heal, they wouldn't last long in the battle against white supremacy. Can you imagine the New York Times op-ed praising white people? If they didn't regularly take time to heal, they wouldn't last long in the battle against you know, criminality from certain groups. To them, self-care could be any activity that soothes among them, their own kind, right? Could you imagine an op-ed praising that for white people? The group of Black Lives Matters I hung out with in Washington, D.C. meant going to a nearby park, choosing a small space off to the side, putting up signs saying Black-only space, and sitting there in peace among Black friends and family. Well, could you imagine New York Times saying, for a group of White Lives Matters I hung out with in Washington, D.C., meant going to a nearby park, choosing a small space off to the side, putting up signs saying Whites-only space, sitting there in peace among white friends and family. Isn't this what people in the South wanted during the 1960s and they got pilloried for? So why is this great and blessed and holy thing for black people to do, but a horrible thing for white people to do? 
that sort of self-segregation can be so valuable. I absolutely believe it. I agree. Self-segregation can be incredibly valuable for different people at different times. Right? But for most people, this is not a good way to go if you're living in a multicultural society to just consciously do everything you can to self-segregate. Right? That's not going to be an effective strategy. But when we remove the aggravations of dealing with whiteness, look, dealing with our groups can be incredibly tiring and dangerous. Right? This is not just a black thing. When we remove the aggravations of dealing with whiteness, everyone in a multicultural society is going to be uncomfortable. Now, Sydney is incredibly diverse. I don't feel any lack of comfort. So somehow the ratio of diversity, the mix of diversity that Sydney has, particularly in its eastern suburbs, does not lead to the feeling of discomfort that I think everyone feels in, in America where you're just constantly bouncing off people very different from yourself, but frequently hostile to you simply because of your race. The microaggressions, the silly questions, the lack of perspective, the otherization, right? These are, these are the, the black aggravations of dealing with whiteness. Now, think about non-black groups. They might talk about the, you know, the threats of murder, the rape, the, the looting, right, that, that goes on when they deal with other groups, right? It's not microaggressions. It's you know, criminal aggressions. It's bodily violence aggressions. It's deadly aggressions. Silly questions, right? So non-blacks frequently deal with things a lot more serious than that. I think most non-blacks who deal with super predators would love to instead be faced with problems of microaggressions, silly questions, lack of perspective and otherization. Right? As, as an Orthodox Jew, I tell you, Orthodox Jews spent virtually no time talking about microaggressions, dealing with silly questions, lack of perspective and otherization. If you're cool in your own identity, if your group is on a positive direction in life, you don't care about any of these things. You only care about these things if you're losing in life, if you're going in a bad direction in life. Right? If you're cool with your in-group identity, you don't care about otherization and microaggressions and silly questions. Only then can we truly relax. Yes, it's a ton easier to relax among your own kind. This isn't just something that's true for blacks, all right? All groups are going to find it easier to relax among their own kind when they get to self-segregate. For me, Atlanta was a safe space like that. Well, don't, doesn't every group deserve their own TV shows, novels, movies where they can relax like this and just have a safe space? There's a black-centric world that embraced the complexity of our culture and generally ignored whiteness. Doesn't every group deserve their group-centric world that embraces the complexity and beauties of their own culture and generally ignores outgroups, right? This is the natural, normal, healthy human condition to have very little concern for outgroups and to relax among your own kind. There are no recurring white characters. Well, plenty of people love to watch TV shows today that don't have recurring black characters, right? Or just primarily have characters of their own race or religion or, or profession. Black-centric world, right? Everyone wants a world that is centric to their in-group identity. Watching Atlanta made me feel at home. Doesn't everyone deserve to feel at home? Doesn't everyone deserve a place for you, a home where you feel safe among people like you? Like no other show, Atlanta made me feel seen. 
who needs a TV show to feel seen? This seems to indicate a, a lack of something important in his life. But uh, let's see if Lenny Woes has anything important to say on the Kino Casino. Hey, you've never no, had that's it. not true. That's not true. Okay. I have that wrong, then. That's what I had in my notes, but I just yeah. and, uh, A dono coming six hours and 41 minutes into the podcast from Arcalite, $25. Massive dono. Thank you so much. And he says, great job, lads. Let's go for the 10 hours next time. Yeah, we'll see. <laughs> Maybe I can have another assault then. scandal and then that would fuel for another 10 hours. There's a statement <laughs> on his Telegram about him retiring. God, that's an awful shame. That was a guy, I've forgotten his name now. Uh, he was the most. Luke Ford, that was his name. And he was the most fucking. Like, he really was. He was the definition of bitter. He was a really nasty guy. And he would always pop up whenever there was drama going on in anything in the movement. He would be. Trying to latch onto it, and I don't know wh- I don't know why he was like that. But it, and his own streams were very low quality. But then he wondered why he wasn't getting a following like other people. There's many such cases of that, isn't there? Yeah. Many such fucking. I don't know. I, I don't think uh, people who produce a higher IQ show uh, tend to be terribly disturbed that they're not getting a, the the higher following that comes when you attract you know, the worst in people and you know dish out you know low IQ nonsense. So some people are just transparent, that they're just easy to read, easy to riff off because they they have an exaggerated sense of their own importance. So in, in Australia, we call it like taking the mickey out of someone or knocking down the, the tall poppies. So people like Millennial Woes and uh, Richard Spencer, they frequently demonstrate an exaggerated sense of their own self-importance, which is just so enticing and, and inviting to make note of. She started a project that does dictate Almost done, guys. the way it will proceed, but also in the case I finished of the, the sixth liter of water, you folks. The There's a light at the end of the tunnel. You're a leader, you a leader an hour and a bit? That's how you feel about the project, which in turn will influence what you do with it. Wow. I, I like the, the pretension. Oh, what's that guy's name again? Uh, who, who is that guy? But he knows. He knows all about me. <laughs> and, you know, he's got me down. But, uh, Doggone it. What's his name again? All right. Media Hit says, Mojo and testosterone, why men must keep Just moving. rips the roof off your place. Now you're forced to move. Or there might be an earthquake if you're out here in California like I am. Might be an earthquake, a shakeup that causes your house to just cave in. Now you got to move, right? You got to start moving. You got to get off the couch. And you got to throw the nachos to the side. You got to put the video games away. And you got to start moving in life again. So understand. Everything about life requires movement, okay? Everything about keeping your testosterone at healthy levels requires you to move, meaning you cannot sit still, meaning you cannot get complacent, meaning you cannot allow your life to become too comfortable, okay? How many of you guys just get so, so comfortable at your place in life? Your daily routine, just like getting up at a certain time in the morning, having your breakfast and going to work, then coming home and then having dinner, taking a shower and going to sleep and doing it all. Everything is contingent. So I know comfort gets a, a bad name, right? You're not supposed to be too comfortable. You should always be you know, out on the edge. Well, for some people, trying to be as comfortable as possible is not just what is best for them, not for many men. Being as comfortable as possible, it's not just best for them. It's best for everyone who has any interaction with them. If you have addictive, compulsive, self-destructive tendencies, 
trying to stay as compulsive as comfortable as possible is the very best thing to do, right? You shouldn't be hanging out, living life on the edge. Like there are reasons why people act out compulsively in a self-destructive manner. You want to try to avoid those reasons. For example, when you're hungry, angry, lonely, tired, you're much more likely to make horrible decisions that are not just horrible for you, but for other people. You're much more likely to be a drag on society. So comfort is is a better thing than this this uh, vlogger is going off on. You want to be in comfort, generally speaking, as much as possible. And most discomfort is because you are internally misaligned, right? There's something going on with you that you know, needs addressing, that's incredibly destructive, and you need to bring it up. So if it's something that your father said to you when, when you were five, right? You need to deal with it, right? You, you don't act out in self-destructive or even socially destructive manners for no reason. And as long as you feel uncomfortable, you're much more likely to behave in a way that is unnecessarily hurtful to yourself and to other people. So all these self-help gurus talking about uh, don't settle for comfort. You've got to always be out there pushing, pushing, pushing you're in great danger of pushing yourself into self-destruction and hurting other people. So you can work out in a way that is highly uncomfortable and you'll be far more likely to injure yourself. So there should just be a moderate level of pain and discomfort in your workout. There should not be an extreme level. You should not be leaving everything, you know, everything you've got there on the playing field. Right? You do that every day. You're not going to have a long playing career. So for a lot of life, you know, just bringing 70 or 80% of yourself is going to be enough. You don't have to be driving yourself constantly. There's something wrong with you if you're just constantly driving yourself. Let's get a little bit more from Tucker Carlson, construction of Obama's temple was halted. And Barack Obama is the perfect example. Oppressed, really? Obama is a half-white guy with an Ivy League degree who served as president of the United States for two terms and lives in two oceanfront compounds in the richest zip codes in the world. Does that sound like oppression? No, it sounds like privilege. That's fine. But no, they tell you, he's Emmett Till. He's a powerless victim of your racism. So when you make allegations like that, nobody gets to ask the obvious questions like, where'd you get all this money? Like, how are you making a living? How'd you get so rich? What have you been selling in exchange for that money? And by the way, why are you spending a half a billion dollars on a presidential library? You don't get to ask those questions because all you know is that somebody left a noose at a construction site because this is an immoral, racist country. All the people below me are bad people. People at the top are good people. The bad people on the bottom are creating a country full of racism that's so pervasive and scary that we have to pause construction on the temple just to catch our breath. Obama's told us. Okay, so I'm going to start there from Tucker Carlson. So I've been thinking a lot about mateship and how much easier it seems to be to build friendships in Australia than in the United States. So I think part of it is that Australia is more communally oriented and America is more individualistic. So the more individualistic the society, you know, the more difficult you'll have building friendships and community. So I was just couple of hours ago before I started this stream, this is what led to my stream. I started working on a blog, a blog post about mateship 
because I was thinking about, oh, the Dallas Cowboys are playing tomorrow morning, Sydney time, 8.30 a.m. They're playing the Green Bay Packers. I just felt that my interest in that game was about half what it was normally. So most everything is contingent, meaning dependent, right, on, on place, circumstance. So when the NFL is not getting socially reinforced by the people around me, I have less interest in the NFL. So much of what I think is me is just really me in certain times and places. So most of what I think about in Los Angeles, I'm not thinking about in Sydney. Right? When I'm in Los Angeles, I'm thinking about getting ahead, you know, making my move. And in Sydney, I'm meeting my responsibilities. I'm making some money. I'm checking my, my bank balance or related accounts almost every day. You know, I, I'm careful to spend money carefully. I meet my other obligations. But I'm here largely having a holiday, just having a good time, and I'm not striving to get ahead. So almost everything that worried me, concerned me, preoccupied me in Los Angeles is simply much less intense here in, in Sydney, right? It's a considerable reduced concern here in Sydney. Now, there are exceptions to this, my commitment to my 12-step program. So I spend more than an hour on my 12-step work and uh, talking to sponsees every day. And uh, commitment to my Judaism, right? That hasn't waned at all. But my disappointments in California have largely left me in Australia. Things that bugged me in Beverly Hills are much milder concern on Bondi Beach. I'm talking about degrees and intensity of intensity of concern. I'm not talking black and white states of absolute concern versus no concern. So wherever you go, there you are, right? The famous saying, but that's only partly right because who we are depends upon where we are, the situation that we find ourselves in. We're different at work than we are at a bar versus at a church or a synagogue. So I am no longer the person I was in Los Angeles. Right? That person can only exist in Los Angeles. Right? When I lived in the Napa Valley, when I lived in Auburn, California, when I lived in Orlando, Florida, I was different from L.A. Luke. Right? So there is no true self because we are different in different situations. Now, there are some exceptions to this, such as if you have, you know, an addiction, uh, compulsions, self-destruction, personality disorders, right? There are going to be exceptions here. So if you overread, you know, over debt, under earn, engage in excessive shopping and spending, if you're manic or drowned in depression everywhere you go, then these self-destructive compulsions, you know, appear to be essential to who you are without recovery. So people talk in AA about doing a geographic, this idea that if you simply move location, that maybe your drinking problem will disappear. So if you can move and then your addiction disappears, all right, by, by definition, you don't really have an addiction from, from a 12-step perspective. So if you can move to a new place, stop acting out in a compulsive, destructive way, then this, this compulsion, self-destruction is not essential to who you are. Now, I don't have a strong ideological commitment to the purity of the truth of philosophy of this 12-step model treating addiction as a disease. I just know it pragmatically helped me. It's when I looked at my self-destructive behavior as, as a moral failing, then I just beat myself down, right? It's really hard for me to face myself as a bad person doing bad things. So that's the moral model, right? Where my failings, my moral failings reflected you know, my bad character and that I was a bad person. It was a lot easier for me to deal with my addictions when I started looking at myself as a sick person trying to get better rather than a bad person trying to become good. 
but I am not ideologically committed to the, the truth of, of that statement. It just seemed to pragmatically work for me. So I, when you travel, you realize that so much of who you are and what you care about is socially constructed and contingent, meaning dependent. Right? There, there are parts of me that I think are essential, and I move fly to Sydney, and I realize they're not essentially me. They are contingent. They are socially constructed. Right? Change the contingency, change the situation, change the society you're in, change your geographic situation, change the people that you're hanging out with, and many parts of you will either leave or they will be considerably diminished. I had a very successful friend who was married to a rich man. They lived in, in a beautiful home in a safe part of Los Angeles, but she had great difficulty sleeping at night. Then during COVID, she moved out of LA, moved to Europe, and now she sleeps fine. So in Los Angeles, there's a very grim sense of dissatisfaction with the rampant homelessness and, and crime and this lack of sense that the political process is up to meeting the challenges of the city. In Sydney, I'm not detecting anything like that, right? I've been here nine days. Nobody's trying to talk to me about Australian politics or Australian cultural wars. They just don't seem to matter much here. I, the other day, I finally heard my first angry outburst, but no police sirens. I mean, in LA, there are constantly helicopters overhead and police sirens and notifications of you know, crimes taking place in, in your community. So I'm just not detecting much rage or despair in Sydney's eastern suburbs. So why are friends easier to make and maintain in Australia than in America? So loneliness is a major news story right now in, in the United States. Why? So in Australia, there's tremendous value given to mateship. Right? Your mate is, is your friend. And your focus of attention is likely to be on your mates, not just on your individual achievement. So Steve Saylor notes that Australia is the best place in the world to be an average bloke. Right? Australia has more restrictive immigration policies. It's more homogeneous. It's more restrictive immigration policies mean easier living standards for its citizens. Wages for average people are relatively high. Family formation is more affordable, except in the biggest cities like Sydney and Melbourne. Uh, Australia is more communal. America is more individualist. The great American value is freedom. The great Australian value is fairness. So these differences in emphasis might largely account for the greater strength of friendship in Australia as compared to America. I remember coming back to Australia for a year after high school, and I quickly made you know, mates, and I, I felt so gutted when, when I left because I developed a sense of community and friendship and connection with people that, that uh, I wasn't usually able to recapture in, in America. So the BBC has an article here, How Loneliness is Killing Men. Back in 2008, a small study asked people to stand at the bottom of a hill, look up, and guess how steep it was. So when people were there alone, they thought the hill was much deeper than when they were there with friends. And that's absolutely my life experience. Everything seems more difficult when I'm feeling alone. Everything seems easier, much more doable when I'm feeling connected with other people. So having a stronger social circle is associated with having a longer life, fewer illness, illnesses, less intense illness, lower blood pressure, you get release of more positive chemicals in your brain. People tend to be less stressed, more resilient, more optimistic when they have friends. They're more likely to have a healthy weight. They're less likely to suffer cognitive decline as they age. They seem to enjoy some protection from cancer, heart disease, and depression. But there's one group, a big one, 
is missing out on these benefits, men are lonely. Now, are these benefits the result of having friends or is having friends the result of having the good genes? So I think it's more the latter than the former, but I believe that we do have a sense of agency and that we can have an effect on the quality of our connections with other people. So one in five men apparently have no close friends. I mean, that rings true to me. One part of American life that I have found to have all the virtues of mateship is in traditional religious life. In that part of my life, when I was a Seventh-day Adventist and, or an Orthodox Jew, loneliness has not usually been a problem. According to some research, loneliness is a health hazard as dangerous as smoking or alcoholism. Yeah, I believe that, but I don't think it's the loneliness that's the cause. I think loneliness is the effect of having inferior genes and being less fit at, at life. So we've got some experts here saying that there's a problem with men. When you speak to boys age 11, 12, 13, they have a natural capacity for closeness. But when they get to 15 or 16... They have this stereotype creeping into their responses that friends don't matter. So this woman says that young men are being excessively macho about friendship. Right? So masculinity seems much less charged and much less contentious in Australia. It's much less something that people struggle over and worry about and you know delve into. Right? I think Australia is the one first world country where men and women naturally self-segregate, right? If you're a bloke and a Barbie in Australia, right? It would be weird if you spent most of your time talking to women, right? It's accepted wisdom here that men and women will generally prefer their own company, have separate concerns, and will be happiest with with themselves. If you ever watched a sitcom, you know how it goes. Men have superficial or transactional relationships with each other and bond by banter as they watch sport or drink beer. I think that's just a superficial take. Right? Banter often precedes more substantive you know, gut-level disclosures b- between men. Women, by contrast, have deep and emotionally vulnerable conversations marked by shared secrets and interpersonal closeness. These sitcom stereotypes are borne out by research. So this may be a problem with a significant part of the male population it's not generally speaking being my life experience and the, the mates that, that I have. So the two sexes have very, are very different in their social styles, as Professor Robin Dunbar at University of Oxford, who focuses on social bonding. That's true. So female social world is built around personalized relationships. Matters who you are, not what you are. For men, the difference is that men primarily meet up to engage in activities. So a lot easier to make and maintain friendships if you're in a traditional religion. On the other hand, male friendships, in my experience, are not as volatile as female friendships. They're more likely to last with less drama. One difference between male and female friendships is the side-by-side versus face-to-face relationships. So when men meet up with their friends, they tend to stand shoulder to shoulder at the bar, at the football ground, at fishing at a river. When women meet up, they tend to sit across the table from each other and talk. So, yeah, that, that rings true. And I also wonder if some reduced levels of friendship among first world men is in part a reflection of the growing acceptance and celebration of homosexuality. But going with a mate to see flowers in bloom 
or to see a play right? that used to be normal behavior among heterosexual men. Now it's increasingly thought of as gay activity. Most straight blokes don't want to look gay. So many things that men used to do together, they have stopped doing together nearly as much because it's become connected with being gay. The emotional investment of frequent contact that women prize is not as important for men. Men can go months without seeing a mate, still consider that person a close friend. And this superficial approach to friendship explained why men are losing friends and are more likely to feel lonely. Yeah, I think there's something to that. But male friendship depends upon common activity, common meeting places like synagogue, church, a bar, a club. I think with the decline in organized religion and with increasing diversity and increasing civil rights legislation, which makes it harder to hang out with people like you and self-segregate, that there has been a decline in organized religion and in community generally. So there are fewer exclusive roles in religion, in charities, in wider society that are reserved for men. And as men don't like competing with women, right, they would rather drop out than compete. Homelessness, addiction, breakdown of family home, men are more likely to experience these than women. Isolation is more likely to happen to men. So we've had all these structural changes in the West over the past 60 years, including civil rights legislation that makes it you know, increasingly difficult for men to enjoy male-only spaces. It used to be that men would gather at service clubs such as Kiwanis. Now these clubs are forced to be co-ed and men have increasingly dropped out. The presence of a single woman in a male group will completely uh, change the, the dynamic. Many times here. before, this is a bad country, he told us, for eight years. He knew from his own life that progress is fragile, that we have to be vigilant against the darker currents of this country's history, of our own history, with their whirlpools of violence, and hatred and despair that can always rise again. Bull Connor may be gone, but today we witness with our own eyes police officers kneeling on the necks of black Americans. Bull Connor might be gone, but you still exist. And you're oppressing everybody else, so we're going to have to oppress you. This latest offense against one of the world's most powerful men is so appalling that the authorities have offered a $100,000 reward to anyone who can find the person who left a noose at Obama's presidential library. $100,000, because we've victimized Barack Obama yet again, and his wife. What's interesting, just for perspective, is that there's no $100,000 reward outstanding for the, say, thousands of unsolved murders in this country. And that's a lot of murders. In fact, roughly half the murders that occur in the United States are now never solved they're not becoming third worlds or anything. Thomas Hargrove, who runs the Murder Accountability Project, put it this way very crisply. It's a 50-50 coin flip. It's never been this bad. During the last seven months of 2020, most murders went unsolved. That's never happened before in America. Now, why is that happening? Okay, so I've been working on a long blog post on this topic of loneliness and friendship. So here's the BBC. Another important factor is that men are a bit useless. Right. Can you imagine the BBC writing this about black people or homosexuals or any other minority group, sacred group, right? They never criticize any other group for their own problems. 
BBC here. When it comes to making plans or staying in contact with friends, men are socially lazy. And uh, let me just uh, wrap up uh, the show for today to be continued, guys. Bye-bye.